You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey. Welcome back to another episode of Sparking Wholeness. And today it's another solo episode where I am going to be breaking down the gut-brain connection in order to better understand how to support our mental health at the gut level. Now this is probably going to be the most comprehensive overview that I've ever given before about the gut-brain connection. We're going to get a little nerdy, but stick with me. I'm going to try to make it as short and sweet as possible. And just know that I do have some construction going on outside where I am recording. So if that gets a little loud, I will try to adjust it the best I can. But I'm, you know, we're not the best at that here. So let's just get started. So most of what we know about the gut-brain connection has really only been discovered in the last 30 years. Some of the most important research in the last six years, which is really crazy to think about. So there's, while there's a lot that we do know, there is way more that we don't know. And I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface of what's out there, but I have compiled research from dozens of research papers, from books that I have read, from the training that I have received, both at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition and the School of Applied Functional Medicine. I am not just speaking from my opinions, from what I believe to be true. I am speaking based on what I have read in the research. So I want to make sure that's really clear. And of course, as always, the medical disclaimer that make sure that the the information that I am giving to you today is not to take the place of any medical care that you receive from your provider and that this is not intended to cure or heal or tr- treat any disease. This is purely for information and educational purposes only. Do with it what you will. All right, so the first thing I want you to remember before we get into anything else is that as humans, we are made up of trillions of microbes. And some people would argue, some researchers would say that we have more microbial cells than human cells. And it is these microbes that modulate our mood. And that is going to be the foundation of everything we talk about. Because as you may know, we've had a lot of myths about mental health circulating for a really long time. And we can't talk about the gut-brain connection or really do it justice without first clearing up some of the myths of mental health that have been debunked in recent years. Because this is going to lay a framework for everything else that I share. And because I was diagnosed with PTSD, depression, and bipolar disorder, I grew up believing these five myths and they hindered me from my progress. None of these myths that I'm going to describe here got to the root of why I struggled with my brain so much and none of the myths really contributed to my healing at all and in fact may have done the opposite. So whether you are a health practitioner or maybe you're a patient or maybe you are a friend or loved one of somebody who struggles with mental illness, Processing what roles these myths play in your own progress or the progress of people around you, are it's really worth diving into. Myth number one is that you must be diagnosed with a mental illness to struggle with your mental health. 
That is not true. You don't need an official diagnosis to struggle with your mental health. We are all going to struggle at one point or another. Mental health issues are often symptoms, I say this a lot, of an imbalance in the internal or external environment. And yes, this often stems from what is happening at the gut level. Many commonly prescribed medications can cause mood changes, from birth control to statins. Even food sensitivities, toxicity, poor gut health. And by toxicity, I mean those environmental toxins, um, anything you put on your skin that's an endocrine disruptor, thyroid imbalances, viruses, infections, all these underlying causes can also make our mental health go a little wonky. It can affect the balance of our mood. So just because you're not diagnosed with anything doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle. Instead of getting mad at your brain for struggling, ask your body, what is it trying to tell you? There's usually so much more going on than anxiety or depression. Those are just you know, the check engine light on the dashboard of our health. Those are the ones that are going to be the most predominant, like, oh, hey, wow, I'm super anxious. I'm feeling my heart's racing today. I'm really tense. What is going on? We are so quick to pathologize these symptoms and put a name on it and diagnose it and label it instead of looking around and asking, what is my body telling me with these symptoms? Remember that giving a diagnostic name to a collection of symptoms like depression or anxiety, it doesn't tell us what the root cause is or how to resolve it. So some would suggest, like Dr. Daniel Amen, who if you haven't read his book, The End of Mental Illness, it's, it's a really good one in understanding an overview of everything. But he says that mental health outcomes haven't changed since the 1950s, even with all of the treatments we have available. And that leads to number two. Myth number two is that medication is the only effective treatment. Now, hear me say this. Medication is a helpful tool for some people. It is one tool in the toolbox, but not all tools are going to work for everybody. Many people, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, will experience worsening symptoms, increased risk of suicidality or depression, especially when we're talking about the younger developing brains. The SMILES trial, if you haven't heard of that, and it's capital letters S-M-I-L-E-S, this was a revolutionary nutrition study that showed that the Mediterranean diet may be useful at causing remission in moderate to severe depression, moderate to severe. And there are countless studies that show that exercise itself can work just as well as, if not better, than medication in some people. Also, the antidepressant food score study by Dr. Drew Ramsey, you can look that one up too. That's another powerful way to look at how food can impact our brain health and how the nutrients we receive from food play a direct role in the symptoms that we experience. Other helpful tools include things like neurofeedback, red light therapy, talk therapy, certain trauma therapies like EMDR or tapping EFT. I recently read another study that talked about one heat therapy session in a sauna has antidepressant effects that will last for six weeks. So there are a lot of tools out there. Medication is not the only one. It's oftentimes the quickest we go to, and I think for somebody who truly is in a very deep, dark place, that might be the best thing to go to and in certain situations short term just to get up out of the fog 
And I would never, ever, ever encourage anyone to stop taking meds because that can cause worsening symptoms as well. But we have to look at other safe, evidence-based treatments before choosing treatments that put people at greater risk of increasing negative symptoms. We have to do that. We also need to account for the placebo effect in medication. This accounts for around 40% of the response to antidepressants. And there is research that shows that probiotics are just as effective as medication for depression and anxiety. There are a couple articles that that refer to that. The mod, there's one article called Modulation of Gut Microbiota Brain Axis by Probiotics, Prebiotics, and Diet. That's available in PubMed. And the other one is Effective Probiotics on Depression, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. So there's a lot of really good information. We'll get into probiotics, talking about that a little bit more later. But just know that there there are other treatments available that have been shown to be just as effective as an antidepressant. And when it comes to a placebo, I think placebos are a good thing. And so even having a 40% placebo response could be pretty good for somebody who's struggling. Sometimes we need a placebo to get us over the hump. And so I, I also want to destigmatize that placebo is bad. Placebo is great. I think most of the time, what I am eating, when I tell myself that it's for my brain health, that's a placebo. And that's a pretty good one. So let's go to myth number three. Myth number three is that it's just a chemical imbalance in the brain. Oh, the chemical imba- imbalance theory also known as the monoamine theory, is interesting and it holds some valid thoughts on the function of neurotransmitters, but it is still just a theory. And if you go down that rabbit trail, you will see that the American Psychological Association stated that this theory was incorrect in 2007, though it is still perpetuated by many practitioners. And some would say that it actually was never a valid theory to begin with, but somehow just started circulating. Another study in the Journal of Affective Disorders showed that patients who believe a chemical imbalance is what's causing their depression have worse treatment outcomes. I believe that to be true for myself. In my experience, the worst side effect of believing the chemical imbalance theory is that it led me to believe that I was stuck with a broken brain and that couldn't be further from the truth. These days, many researchers are taking a closer look at the other factors that impact mental health, like the gut-brain connection, which we are talking about today, and how that affects neurotransmitters, toxicity and neuroinflammation, circadian rhythm disruption, and other underlying issues that wreak havoc on our mental health. Furthermore, there is no lab work that confirms what exact chemicals are causing imbalances in the brain. There is no diagnostic tool other than a checklist of symptoms to determine what diagnosis you are suffering from. And so that's something to be aware of as well as we are discussing all of these beliefs that we have about mental health that may actually in fact be myths. Now, before we get to myth number four, I want to take a second and thank our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Ritual. Gaps in the diet should not be ignored. Over 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet, and 95% are not getting their recommended daily intake of key omega-3s. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin was formulated by exhaustive research to help fill nutrient gaps in the diets of women ages 18 and over. It is formulated with nutrients to help support brain health. Yay, we are talking about that today. Bone health, blood health, and provide antioxidant support. 
But Ritual doesn't stop there. They invested in a gold standard university-led clinical trial to prove the impact of Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin. The results? Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in 12 weeks. The clinical study was published in leading scientific journal Frontiers in Nutrition. That's legit. A published clinical study is a big deal and a serious commitment to a first-of-its-kind standard in the industry. Ritual is committed to third-party testing from USP, and the non-GMO project, traceable and vegan-friendly ingredients, and always clear communication. No shady stuff. For me, you guys know that I am super particular about what I put into my body, and I love that the ingredients in Ritual are simple, clean, and backed by science. I love that it's non-GMO and third-party tested. I love knowing that I am supporting my body and my brain with this product, Right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com spark and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com spark. One last time, that's R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash spark. Now getting back to the five myths of mental health, let's check out number four. Myth number four is that your genes determine your diagnosis. Well, contrary to what we've believed in the past, your genes are not your destiny. Yes, genes do load the gun, but our environment is what pulls the trigger when it comes to mental health. This is the whole concept of epigenetics. We can turn genes on or off depending on the environment that we create for them. So saying it's just in the genes keeps us chained up and unmoving as if there is no hope for ever feeling better. Saying it's just in the genes can keep us from looking deeper and finding what's really going on when often it isn't about the actual brain on the surface level at all. Saying it's just in the genes also perpetuates the myth that we will always struggle, which can't be further from the truth. Yes, a genetic predisposition to mental illness, low vitamin D levels, and low B vitamins definitely made me more at risk at struggling, but it was lifestyle factors and trauma that caused my issues to surface. Restoring balance to my whole body health was key for me to start the healing process. Myth number five, if I'm diagnosed, I will always struggle with my mental health. Oh, I was told that one, that this is always what I'm going to deal with. Well, there are lots of people who suffer from mental health issues in the past, but are now thriving and living free from depression, anxiety, racing thoughts, mood disturbances, and panic. Unfortunately, many of us were told that we will always struggle and that's not, that's, that's not even true. It flies in the face of what we know about how the brain and body can heal. Neuroplasticity teaches us that we aren't stuck with a broken brain and when root issues are addressed in the body, whether that root issue is trauma or underlying physical imbalances, it changes the way we think and process. When we believe the old model of mental illness only is a biochemical process, it's easy to stay stuck in a toxic relationship with our brain, always working against it instead of with it. We must normalize mental health symptoms as a part of the human experience. And when symptoms increase in severity or frequency, we need to be willing to ask why and dig deeper. There is always so much more going on than chemicals in the brain or genetics. With tools such as nutrition, supplements, targeted lab work, movement, mindfulness, meditation, neurofeedback, mind-body trauma therapies, talk therapy, and yes, maybe even certain medications for certain people in certain situations, we have more than a fighting chance 
to stand up against this epidemic that is taking down so many people in our world today. And I'm so, that's why I'm so passionate about talking about this. And that's why I devoted an entire episode to this topic. All right. So let's just get into it. Gut brain connection. What are four things that we need to know? Well, number one, let's talk about what the gut even is. The gut, the entire gastrointestinal tract is 25 to 30 feet long. It's think of it as a tunnel that works as an exchange corridor, transmitting and receiving information. The lining is one cell layer thick and it is semi-permeable on purpose. That's a good thing because we want nutrients to get in and we want to be able to keep certain things out. The gut-brain connection, if, if we're just talking about just the how they're connected on a basic level, they're connected via the vagus nerve, and that's spelled V-A-G-U-S. And, you know, I like to say what happens in the vagus nerve does not stay in the vagus nerve because this works in a bi-directional way. It involves the entire enteric, and that's spelled E-N-T-E-R-I-C, nervous system. The enteric nervous system contains 100 million to 500 million neurons. This is the largest collection of nerve cells in the body. That's huge. The vagus nerve connects to the throat, the heart, the blood vessels, the gallbladder, the liver, and the intestines. We feel this when we're stressed, when we're tired, fearful. It sends signals down to our gut to shut down digestion. It tells our heart rate to speed up. Blood pressure will increase, and this will even alter reproductive function and the hormones there. But also, 80 to 90% of the nerve fibers are afferent, meaning they go from gut to brain. So for every one signal your brain sends to your gut, your gut is sending about eight signals back to your brain. So it's possible that your gut may be talking to your brain more than your brain talks to your gut. So number two, what about neurotransmitters? How do they play a role in the gut? Well, we hear a lot about the popular neurotransmitters, which are serotonin, dopamine, GABA, norepinephrine, acetylcholine. Those are the ones that we are most commonly used in language. It's estimated that over 90% of serotonin is produced in the enteric nervous system in your gut and over 50% of dopamine. Dopamine and acetylcholine are crucial for regulating mood and processing thought and emotion via the autonomic nervous system, which we've talked a lot about in this podcast. That's the whole being able to switch back and forth from fight or flight to rest and digest. And then Cortisol is impacted. Cortisol is your stress hormone. It's your master hormone, really regulates just about everything. But that's impacted by the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, okay? HPA axis for short. We'll just call it that because, you know, big words are hard. (laughs) So, neurotransmitters, they are chemical messengers synthesized by amino acids. Where do we get amino acids to begin with? And this is where I love to talk about protein. And a lot of this information is located in Julia Ross's book, The Mood Cure, and also in Trudy Scott's book, The Anti-Anxiety Food Solution. They talk a lot about how our protein, animal protein, converts to neurotransmitters. So tryptophan is converted to serotonin. Now, it does take other cofactors like B6, folate, magnesium, but it does start in the gut and it starts with what we eat. And we're, we only can eat what we're able to, we only can use, sorry, let's, 
We can eat anything, but we're only able to use what we can digest and absorb. And so protein is difficult to digest and absorb if you have low stomach acid, if you have digestive issues to begin with. And when your body can't utilize tryptophan from protein, serotonin will be lowered and it will lead to symptoms of depression. That's why 5-HTP in supplement form, which converts to tryptophan, that consistently outperforms antidepressant drugs in the research. Consistently. Supporting serotonin with tryptophan and 5-HTP can be felt almost instantly instead of waiting weeks on a medication to take effect. So how can you tell that you are low in serotonin? If you have gut problems like constipation, digestive issues, sleep issues, pain syndromes like fibromyalgia, migraines, intense carbon sugar cravings in the afternoon or evening, all of that can indicate that your gut isn't breaking down tryptophan, utilizing it to convert to serotonin. That's really important. To break down amino acids from protein, like I mentioned, your body needs enough stomach acid and it needs enough oxygen, which means proper eating hygiene. That means taking 20 minutes to sit and eat and chew as much as you can and breathe and give your body a chance to rest and digest while you are eating. Tyrosine is another amino acid that converts to dopamine, and that's what gives us that get up and go function. We get that from protein as well. Tyrosine is not as present in vegetable protein. So here's a perfect example. There are 840 milligrams of tyrosine in three scrambled eggs, which is often my serving size of scrambled eggs, but there's only 150 milligrams in 24 almonds. So protein in meat form is what your body needs to form dopamine, norepinephrine, and adrenaline. A low calorie diet, not eating enough, restricting, eating a lot of fast food that's nutrient poor, skipping meals or going without protein will lead to dopamine deficiency. So of course you're going to feel low motivation, like you're dragging, like you don't really want to do anything if you're skipping meals, if you're eating a lot of fast food, and if you're not getting good quality animal protein. Tryptophan, tyrosine, and methionine can all be insufficient in a vegan diet. Now, I do know lots of people who I am friends with who are vegans and they feel really good, but for mental health purposes, I don't I'm not a proponent of a vegan diet. I think that anybody who's struggling with mental health is going to need more of those essential amino acids. This is, and this is also where the gut impacts hormones because tyrosine is necessary for T4 to T3 conversion. So anybody with, with thyroid issues, um, with hypothyroidism, with Hashimoto's, this is where I would not recommend a vegan diet for them as well because they need that tyrosine to convert T4 to T3, which is so, so important. Now, GABA stands for gamma aminobutyric acid. This is an amino acid and neurotransmitter. Taurine and glycine, those three things can all help the body manage stress. But again, we need to get it from protein. And GABA is, is our, I, I love GABA. GABA is the one that tells us that we're safe, that tells us we're okay. And if we're not eating enough protein, and I say if we're not eating enough food, period, our body doesn't know that we're safe. So that's really important. Now we only store two days worth of amino acids. So you can only store the amino acids from food for two days, eight to 10 grams of protein per hour, and anything over 30 grams of protein in a meal will be excreted. So if you're going over that, it's, it may not be something that your body's absorbing. So this is why, unless I know somebody is utilizing and digesting all their protein, I do recommend amino acid supplements with clients who are struggling from anxiety or depression. 
Neurotransmitters are released from one neuron in order to create another neuron to fire. And remember, we have 100 to 500 million of those neurons in our intestinal lining. So the food that we eat has a direct impact on what is produced and what neurons get to wiring and firing at the gut level, and that translates to the brain level. I want to address something real fast, and that is the question of why can't we just take more SSRIs? Why can't we just take more antidepressants if we know that we need serotonin? Well, remember that that we can't measure any level of neurotransmitter in the brain. We can do organic acid testing to measure metabolites, which is how we know that what SSRIs and um, how we know that SSRIs will lower serotonin and dopamine over time, but that's not very widely available. So we have to understand this principle and bear with me. MAO, it stands for monoamine oxidase. This is an enzyme that will break down any surplus amount of, for example, serotonin or dopamine that the enzyme encounters over time in the synapse at the brain level. These drugs, the SSRIs, they're not at all increasing the amount of serotonin that's actually being produced especially not at the gut level. What it's doing, it's keeping whatever level of serotonin that exists in action for longer. So the challenge is that because our body's always creating balance and wants to compensate that through the MAO enzymes, that these enzymes will break down any excessive level of serotonin in the synapses and also dopamine and over time, can lead to a huge reduction in the amount of available serotonin, especially in children. And then that neuronal death that occurs can be long lasting. So that's why I think that when we're talking about medication SSRIs, I think that they can be a really good tool short term to get things going for a little while, but long term, it might have some longer lasting side effects. And it's important to be aware of that. So that's why we need to look at something like protein. We need to look at something like um, 5-HTP, tryptophan support, maybe GABA in supplement form. But we also need to look at our microbes because our microbes make and metabolize neurotransmitters. This is number three. This is crucial to understand that a happy gut equals a happy brain. Probiotics, normalize cortisol, regulate the HPATG axis, and reduce pro-inflammatory cytokines. This is from a study called The Gut Microbiome in the Brain from the Journal of Medicinal Food, and it tells us that lactobacillus produce GABA and acetylcholine, which help calm us down. It regulates the autonomic nervous system. Bifidobacterium produces GABA and tryptophan. And then bacillus strains produce norepinephrine and dopamine. That's huge. But I will say newer research is showing us that it's not just about the neurotransmitters themselves, but that it's about neuropeptides. And neuropeptides, that's a short chain of three plus amino acids. It creates a slower response in the body and a prolonged action. So these receptor sites of what's being activated, that's key to the mind-body connection. As our feelings change, our neuropeptides send a wave of change to alter the chemical composition of our cells. So this is a growing area of study that's still being looked at for a long time. We've really just been looking at neurotransmitter function, but right now, 
a lot of the research is headed in the area of neuropeptides. And here's a quote from Dr. Candace Pert, who says, neuropeptides and their receptors are key to understanding how the mind and the body are interconnected and how emotions are indeed manifested throughout the body. And one example of this is the new study of psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology. We talked about this a little bit with one of my guests when we spoke about the immune system a couple months ago. That's definitely an episode to check out. But this new study helps us understand that the impact of any impact of any virus, long COVID, on the body at the cellular level. It helps us to understand how a virus can impact our neurological health and impact anxiety and depression. So that's important because as I referred to the autonomic nervous system, that's where sympathetic, parasympathetic, that's fight or flight, that's rest and digest. That creates stress resilience to be able to go back and forth, to go from short bursts of fight or flight, because you know that helps us get things done. It helps us to, to have our get up and go going <laughs> to rest and digest where we can chill. That's important, but that's all regulated by the vagus nerve, which is regulated by acetylcholine, which is produced in the gut by key strains of bacteria. So do you see the sequence? Do you see how it's interconnected and how your gut impacts your brain? Number four, this is the fourth one. This is the last place where I'm, I'm going to explain kind of the, the connection and gut brain and, and why it's important. And that is we need to understand enhanced intestinal permeability. We talked about it a little bit in the beginning. A lot of people refer to this as leaky gut. But as I mentioned at the beginning, your intestines are meant to be semi-permeable for nutrients to get in. But over time, after being exposed to stress and toxins, the gut lining breaks down and what is supposed to stay in gets into the bloodstream or gets out into the bloodstream. Things like LPS, lipopolysaccharide, toxins, bacteria, this is all going to drive chronic inflammation. This is where a lot of the study on depression being an inflammatory disorder is coming into play. When there is an imbalance in bacteria, when there's too much of one and too little of another, or if our bacteria is in the wrong place, if we have an overgrowth in the small intestines instead of in the large intestine, this causes a cascade of issues. So if we're looking at the gut-brain axis as, you know, just an axis, just a back and forth, one direction, by even bi-directional, that's a little um, simplistic, I would say. It's actually a network because we are deeply interconnected. Our gut is sending signals to other organs all the time. And that's why we see that gut health, gut issues are rooted in autoimmunity, type 2 diabetes, and other chronic diseases that are plaguing people today at epidemic proportions. This is not just, oh, just a few people are struggling. This is something that's continuing to increase. Dr. Dottis Karazian, in the book, Why Isn't My Brain Working?, has this quote, inflammation in the body, joint pain, high blood sugar, chronic autoimmune disease, releases cytokines. These send messages across the blood-brain barrier that activate inflammation in the brain, altering brain function, and destroying brain tissue. So again, it can't just be about chemicals in the brain. Now, are chemicals in the brain impacted by this? Heck yeah, like that's a big deal, but that's not 
all it is. We have to look at where it begins and what's going on in between in that entire gut brain network. So that does leave us kind of with this whole chicken and egg question of what came first? Is this the brain affecting our gut? Is this the gut affecting our brain? It truly is a complex interconnected spiral that it all feeds into each other. And and if you think about how the gut and brain talk to each other, I wish I could give you a visual map. If we could look at it as gut stress, any any kind of a stress, emotional or physical stress on the gut impacts inflammation, which impacts us feeling bad, which impacts our emotions, which impacts our stress hormones, which leads to oxidative stress, which affects our cellular energy, which leads to poor self-care, which leads to negative thoughts and expectations, which leads to more stress hormones. And now the cycle just perpetuates. So if you can see that everything is interconnected and that if we are just going to say, well, you know, I'm depressed. It's just, you know, my mom struggled with this. My grandma struggled with this. Just a chemical imbalance in my brain. Okay. If you, if if you want to say that, and that helps you and you know, it helps you to overcome what you're going through and you feel better and you feel like you can live a thriving life and, you know, take your medication and sleep more. And that works for you. Awesome. That is, I'm so glad that you found something that works for you. I would say that for the majority of people that I've spoken to, and I know this is true for my own life, we need to look at more options for treatment. We need to look at how can we support our gut? How can we support our ATP, our mitochondrial function? That's huge too. And what is actually impacting gut health? What's hurting our gut health? So I'm going to give you a quick list because this might be just a good checklist for you to go through and say, okay, how could, where could I improve here? Uh, You know, there's no one size fits all. You know, I am not going to be I I try not to look at extremes because any kind of a stress, even a stress over what we're not doing well, is going to impact the way our body functions. And so I'm not saying this to stress you out. If you've come this far, then, you know, I'm assuming you're going to power through and listen to the rest, but give yourself grace. We have to do that. And I really do believe for a lot of people, that mindset level, that just starting with the brain and what can we do to calm the brain, work on that first before looking at what you need to change because we can't change anything until our brain is at a calm regulated state so that might be the first piece if you're ready to look at where to make a change here's your list stress is number one 75 percent of gut issues stem from early childhood trauma if you have unresolved trauma if you have a chronic stressor in that way that is going to alter your gut health it's going to affect your bacterial balance as well. The other thing, toxins, environmental toxins, toxins in our food, pesticides, glyphosate, the beauty products, the things we put on our skin, our sunscreens that are so horrible. Um, Any of the, I would say, you know, there are some people that say that the air inside our houses, they are more, it's more toxic than what we get outside. And so that's something to be aware of too. What fragrances do you have? Laundry detergents, um, fabric softener is probably one of the worst things for cognitive decline, but looking at dishwasher liquid, looking at candles, looking at those wax melts, look for cleaner options, non-toxic, non-toxic options. And that's where I recommend going to the environmental working group. They have a great list. They have a skin deep database. You can run, put any product in the search engine and see where, where 
it falls on that toxicity list or toxicity level. The other things that that impact gut health are commonly prescribed medication as well as over-the-counter medication. So antibiotics, like anything that you take for, let's say, strep throat, uh, UTI, ear infection, random virus, cold. I have been overly prescribed antibiotics my entire life. I was given antibiotics for viruses, you know, like, so... I'm not saying that there are times, if I have a UTI, y'all, I'm just going to say I'm going to take antibiotics. But there are times, there's a time and a place for antibiotics, but we also need to remember that antibiotics are in our food, in our animal products as well. So that's where we want to eat quality animal products, quality food. But ibuprofen, that can break down the gut lining. That's why there's a warning on that. Acid-reducing medication, any of those like um, proton pump inhibitors, anything from Prilosec to Tums, any of that is going to wear down the gut lining because it's decreasing the stomach acid that's protective to break our food down. Birth control pills will cause some stress to the gut. SSRIs, we are seeing increasing studies about how SSRIs even have an antimicrobial effect similar to antibiotics. And then there are plenty of others that you can look up and just be aware that what anything you put into your body is going to have an impact, right? So risk always weigh the risk versus benefits. The other thing is the increase in C-sections. Again, I'm not judging anybody. I'm not shaming anybody. Along with the decrease in breastfeeding, it changes the microbial balance in the gut. And many of us were um, C-section babies ourselves, or we were formula babies, and we just did not get the diversity to make up that microbial balance in the gut. Lack of diversity in the diet from our natural foods and fermented foods. There's a huge lack in how many whole food nutrients we're getting these days. There's a huge lack in in fermented foods. And kombucha with like 20 grams of sugar is not the same thing. (laughs) So eating something like sauerkraut, kimchi, just a little bit a day, even some probiotic yogurt, as long as it's plain, no sugar added, that's that can be helpful. Sugar and processed food. I already kind of talked about nutrient um, lacking processed food and how that affects us, but sugar is a big one. That's going to impact gut health. Gluten. Gluten itself, the wheat, is going to break down the gut lining and create more um, holes in the tight junctions of that cellular wall because of the release of zonulin when consuming gluten. And that's something to be aware of. Even if you don't have a sensitivity, even if you're not celiac, it might make an effect. Alcohol, that should be obvious. It's neurotoxic. It breaks down the gut as well. Any kind of damage to the gut lining from chronic disease and inflammation that you have already is going to put your gut at risk of having, of creating more issues. And so we want to work on creating a healing environment for our bodies. And what does that mean? On a practical level, more joy. Add more joy to your life. Joy is underrated. Have more fun. Laugh. Improve vagal tone by singing, by laughing, by smiling. That's going to help with that stress resilience. Manage your stress. Learn to meditate. Slow down. Do some yoga. Just be still for a little bit. You don't have to look at your phone. Just take a second and breathe. That deep nasal breathing is huge for managing your stress response. Many of us aren't even breathing deeply when we sleep, and that puts our body into further fight or flight. Practicing eating hygiene. I already kind of touched on that, but taking time to eat your food, eat with somebody you care about, make it an enjoyable experience, really 
teach your body that eating is not a stressful time. Eating is a time to absorb and utilize nutrients, no matter what it is that you're eating. But whole food nutrition does play a role. Think about it this way. Does your body recognize this food as a friend or a foe? Because a whole lot of what we eat, our body does not recognize as as anything. So keep that in mind as, as you're adjusting. And then of course you could detox your, your life, your products, your beauty products. You could detox your, all of your personal care products or your laundry products or cleaning supplies or any of that. And there are tons of, tons of good brands that are available now. And like I said, go to environmental working group and that's just going to reduce the load. You know, it's funny. I was thinking earlier today when I was preparing for this episode, I've heard many people say things like, well, oh, well that causes cancer that co- oh, well, doesn't everything cause cancer these days, you know, because every day you're hearing another report about something that's toxic for us. And like, that's the thing is I don't want to live in fear. Because fear is going to alter the microbial balance in the gut. Just two hours of emotional stress will do that. That's not, that's not what I'm about. What I'm about is minimizing the load. If we could just minimize the load, get more sleep, enjoy our lives, make our primary nutrition, our relationships, our movement practices, our work environment, make that primary. Oh, relationship with God? That's something that so many of us are deficient in. We don't concentrate on, on the things that are the most important. We sit there and worry about ingredients in our food and what's hurting our gut health, right? So I do want to make sure that this is not just something else to stress you out, that this is something that's helpful and that's going to be beneficial for your healing. As always, reach out to me with any questions that you have, and I'm happy to, in, to have a further discussion on any of this. So I hope this is helpful. I hope you have a better understanding of the gut-brain connection and enjoy your week. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.